0: take your Bibles this morning, open them to uh, Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to look at all of Matthew chapter 15 today. I heard someone say, nice. That's... If you didn't say that, um, I misheard you, but I'm going to go with what I misheard, not what may have actually been said. <laughs> I uh, spent the last week uh, at Inlo Baptist Camp, up in the uh, uh, up past Tahiki uh, in the Manzana Mountains, with our students and, um, and we had a good time a lot of, A lot of people have been asking me this morning, how did camp go? I said it went, and uh, it, it was good. We had a really good time. I was exhausted uh, i i, I haven 't been to Inlo or to to youth camp in, in probably at least ten or twelve years and um, and somebody else gets to go next year so but we had, we had a fun time and uh, and really good time together. A good time of worship and, and studying God's word. And um, just, I was really grateful for the time I got to spend with our students and, uh, and with a couple of our college students, Josh uh, Walker and Aubrey Marsh, as they went with us as some of our sponsors. And I'm so grateful for young people with lots of energy yes. who can, yeah, amen, who can shore up my weaknesses. Just by show of hands. Who has seen uh, either in person or on film the uh, Broadway musical Fiddler on the Roof? That's a lot of hands. That's good. So this is going to land with most of you. Uh, the opening number in Fiddler on the Roof is with the main character, Tevye, who is the, uh, a Jewish Yiddish uh, father. Uh, of a family in a small town that is dealing with massive sort of cultural and, uh, and, and uh, societal change going on around. Them. The op- opening number of the musical is a song called Tradition, right? And uh, I won't sing it for you. You're welcome. But in that... In that song, Tevya sings about all of the the different roles of people in the family and the matchmaker and even the beggar in town. and, And all of these things are for the sake of tradition, right? I almost sang it. I was so tempted. All these things for the sake of tradition and, and Tevye is, is struggling in this world that is changing and the thing that he's holding on to in all this is tradition. These old traditions that as time goes by are losing their effectiveness, they're losing their meaning, but it's all that Tevye knows. And in holding on to tradition, he makes it nearly impossible for himself to move forward in this changing world to no even know how to live in the world. For many of us, we, we do the same thing. We have you know, ideas of what you know life should be like, what the family ought you know, how to, it, how it should function because that's how we did it when I was growing up and it's the only way that I know and we hold on to those things. Some traditions are not bad. Some are, some are quite good. But oftentimes the traditions that we hold on to are ultimately things that in our personal lives, and our home lives, even, even in our faith and in the life of the church, are things that hold us back from being able to move forward into the things that God has for us. As we look at Matthew chapter 15, the whole chapter, we're going to see Jesus pointing his disciples and, and, and some Pharisees that are challenging him. To the supremacy and the authority of the word of God. The word of God which serves as an antidote to our negative, to our bad traditions. And as a catalyst for compassionate mission in the world. The word of God fixes our bad traditions and catalyzes us. It it gets us ready. It sends us out to the world on compassionate mission with the gospel. In this chapter, our Lord Jesus clearly demonstrates... That the supremacy of the Word of God over our traditions of the traditions of man, the things that we um, um, create for ourselves, the supremacy of God's Word uh, uh, keeps us, uh, uh, shoots us out into the world with the gospel of Jesus because it is what drives our lives. So, the first thing that we see in uh, Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20 is that God's word is the antidote to man's tradition. Let's look at these verses together. The disciple Matthew, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But, if you say, uh, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do not. They, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, "Hear and understand: It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person." Then the disciples came and said to him, "Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? Uh, Matthew uses the word scandalized there again when they heard this saying." Jesus answered, "Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone; they are blind guides." And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. God's word is the antidote to man's tradition, to our traditions, does a couple of different things that we see here in this passage. First of all, in verses 1 through 9, it works against our selfish preferences and practices. The word of God works against our selfish preferences and practices. Here in verse 1, Jesus is confronted by Pharisees. Right? These are, remember again, experts in the law, in the Old Testament uh, law, and, and in the execution of that law, and in obedience to that law. And they travel from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee, not a short distance, to find Jesus, to ask him this question. And the fact that they travel this distance to, to ask Jesus this probing question demonstrates or at least implies that they're plotting and scheming against Jesus to to try to trap him up, to to catch him in in, in saying something that he's not able to find his way out of, that their plotting and scheming has gotten worse and it's gotten more strategic. They are now uh, on a mission to uh, catch Jesus. And so they come to Jesus in verse 2 with a question. That question is, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Because they don't wash their hands before they eat. The question at hand... It's questioned by the Pharisees, and their problem with the disciples indicates their preference for the tradition of the elders over the law of God. Their question for the disciples is not about something that God has said. It's about something that the elders, that, that rabbis, respected rabbis, trusted rabbis, have come up with over time. Now, the tradition that they're referring to here is not part of the, the cleanliness law of Leviticus in the Old Testament, but a tradition of rabbis that had come much later. In fact, there were several of these traditions that had been codified by rabbis by about the year 200 A.D. in a, a volume called the Mishnah. And if you really care that much, you can Google it and you can read it. The matter of washing hands, the Pharisees, why don't your disciples wash their hands? They, they disrespect, they, they disobey the tradition of the elders. The matter of washing hands is not an issue of of hygiene for the Pharisees. It's not because the disciples are washing with dirty, filthy hands, but rather an issue of ritual or ceremonial cleanness that had come about as a part of interpretation of Scripture and presumptions about things that elders uh, among the Jews had come up with. So that's their question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answers their question with another question. Did you catch that? Verse 3. Jesus doesn't say, I'll tell you why. No, he says, why do you profane the law of God for the sake of tradition? Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions, Jesus says. This response by Jesus, is, it's not an answer, really, to their question. But it's another question that reveals the sin of the Pharisees. The sin of breaking the written law of God for the spoken traditions of man. And then Jesus goes on to explain exactly which law they're breaking for the sake of their traditions in the verses that follow. Look at verse 4. God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Quoting there Exodus uh, 20 in the fifth commandment, and also Exodus 21 with the uh, circumstances or the consequences for breaking that commandment. Verse 5, but you say... If anyone tells his father or mother, so catch this, he says, God's word says, but you say, right? If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Here, Jesus is referring in verses five and six to what are called Corban laws, Corban laws, things that are dedicated to God. These laws that the Pharisees and and their elders had come up with are not written in scripture, but they allowed a Jewish individual while they were still alive to dedicate certain monies or possessions, some of their assets to go to the temple upon their death. However, while they were still alive, they could continue to use that money or those possessions to live off of until they died. So say I have $100. That sounds about right. That's about all I have. I said, when I die, I want my $100 to go to the church. But in the meantime, um, I'm going to use that $100 to pay my bills and buy food and things like that. Okay. So that if I use up the $100 before I die, nothing goes to the church. Right. But still, I dedicated it, you know, at that point. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, right? So in dedicating their money this way, they gave themselves, the Pharisees, the Jews that would practice these Corban laws, gave themselves an excuse to not use those funds to care for their aging or ailing parents. Saying essentially, sorry, Dad, sorry, Mom. Anything I could have used to help with your medical bills, to buy you food, to fill your pantry, all that money's already been dedicated to the temple. I can't, I can't use it for you. You're on your own. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees is, is fully revealed by Jesus when he says, so for the sake of your tradition, for the sake of your practices, your preferences, the things that you want to do, you have made void the word of God. He isn't just, Jesus isn't just addressing the one tradition of hand-washing here. He's addressing all of their traditions as a whole in the way that he answers their question. He's addressing the way that all of their traditions um, uh, work against the authority of God's word. And he's lifting up, he's pointing out to them the supremacy and authority of God's spoken word over and against the traditions of man. The importance of God's written word is underscored here in these verses by Jesus. The, the Bible, friends, the word of God, the spoken word of God... These 66 books compiled in this library that we carry around with us everywhere we go, that is to be our final governing authority on all things related to salvation and godly living. There is no other authority. There is no greater authority. There is nothing that surpasses or supersedes the authority of God's word. Only the Bible, only this book is authored, is, is written by the Holy Spirit of God as he inspired and guided human authors to compose it. Only this book. His word is the only never-failing source of spiritual truth, and it is the clearest and truest source of knowledge about God in the world. There is nothing that speaks about God, His His nature, His character, His divine attributes. There is nothing that reveals the sinfulness of our our hearts and our state, uh, our relationship with God more clearly or more truly than this book. There's nothing that guides our lives. There's nothing that... that, Well, let me say this first. Nothing, Nothing that points us more clearly to the only way that we can be saved, which is by trusting Jesus, than this book. And there is no other authority that better tells us how to live, how to walk in light of our salvation in Jesus, than this book, than the Bible, God's written word. Now, men and women, people, have lots of traditions, Pharisees had lots of traditions we in the church today have and not just this church lots of churches have all kinds of traditions what we need to see what we need to be aware of is that man's traditions our traditions are not grounded in the infinite wisdom and holy inspiration of God okay God did not inspire you by the Holy Spirit to oh goodness now I'm going to come up with something right have a use only one kind of you know curriculum in your Sunday school class forever. That's not inspired by the word of God, okay? So if we're holding on to something like that as a tradition, right, it's, it's quite possible we're, we're doing that at the expense of what maybe God is calling us to do. Traditions in and of themselves, friends, they're not bad. Using a particular curriculum in your Sunday school class is not a bad thing. Having a preference for a particular curriculum in a Sunday school class is not a bad thing. Or for the use of a particular room in the church, it's not a bad thing. But when they contradict, when they contravene, when our preferences, our traditions replace God's word as the final authority in our lives, then we've got a problem. Any tradition that causes us to ignore God's word, to disobey God's word, is an evil tradition. Even if it started good. Even if it started with the best of intentions and maybe for a period of time, it was good and glorifying to God brought lost people to Jesus. If over time, the tradition becomes the thing that we do over and against preaching the word of God, studying the word of God, submitting our lives to the word of God, then that tradition has become an evil tradition. Any tradition that places a man or men or the wisdom or opinions of man or men on par with God. Or above God's word as a source of spiritual authority is an evil tradition. Any attempt to be more effective in ministry by adopting the wisdom of any man over the authority of God's inspired word to us in the Bible. Even though it lead to perceived visible success will only end in spiritual tragedy. Adopting traditions of supposed church gurus in the United States today in order to grow our church numerically. If we're trusting the traditions and the schemes, the the gimmicks of men to get more people in church over and against the word of God working in the hearts of souls, we've missed it. In the church and in our lives, this is the the takeaway from these first nine verses. In the church and in our lives, God's word alone must be the authority, the only authority that we all look to both first and last. We look to God's word first. First, to guide, instruct, convict, encourage us in our walk with Jesus. And then we apply it to our lives as we understand it. And to the many aspects of our church as we regularly look to God's word to make sure that we have not strayed from where he started. We look to it first to guide us. We look to it last to make sure that we haven't messed up along the way. Many struggling churches in this nation and around the world, not all but many, I think are a lot like trophy cases with their traditions as their trophies. Some traditions are meaningful and purposeful. Things like celebrating Christmas and Easter. These are traditions that point us to the the, the goodness of God, the greatness of God and his wondrous saving work through Jesus. They're testaments. Some of these uh, traditions are testaments to our Savior that remind us of our mission to make disciples of all nations. But others of our traditions are like little league trophies displayed by a 35-year-old in his basement. (laughs) They have no function but to point back to days long gone, to entertain nostalgia, to distract from the importance of growing up, of maturing, of working hard in the present moment. Christian, what are the trophies you're dusting that are not central to the word of God or effective for fulfilling the work of God in the Great Commission? What Little League trophies do you have in your life? What, what traditions do you have that, that all they do, all they serve to do is be a thing to dust and to show off to people? Church, collectively, we who are members of First Baptist West Albuquerque, what are the traditions or habits that we hold on to that are maybe relics of a bygone era? Are, are, are there Are there presuppositions or assumptions about what the church should be or what people who are in church should look like or be like or where they should come from? Are there traditions about the the songs we sing or the way we preach or where the pastor stands? Are there things like that that we're holding on to that are that that we're making a big deal? We're dusting those trophies rather than focusing on the word of God and allowing it to transform us. Maybe some of these things were helpful, really helpful in the past for getting the gospel to the lost. Maybe some of these traditions were really helpful in the past for developing our our spiritual discipline. But now they've just become the things that we waste precious time dusting and polishing while the world goes on lost and dying. Um, Tom Rayner, who's the, the president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Ministries. They're the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. A couple of years ago, he wrote down the top 10 most hotly contested traditions in the church today. These are some of these are trophies that we are dusting and polishing for no good reason. Okay, worship and music style. Number one, he says, though, I have noted elsewhere that this issue is not as pervasive as it once was. It is still number one. In your heart, in your mind, are you fighting over the kind of music we sing rather than the words that are in the music that we sing? Making sure that the words are glorifying to God and teaching us the gospel. Second, order of worship service. He says, thou shalt not change any items in the order of worship. (laughs) We do. We laugh, right? But like two songs. Maybe a special music and then there's an offering and then the pastor preaches for this many minutes and and certainly not longer. And then we have a response time that lasts this long and we're out of here by 1145 (laughs) times of worship services. The first 3 he says most frequently defended traditions are related to worship services. Worship and music style, order of worship, times of worship services. And Tom Rainer talks to lots of churches does does consultation with lots of churches that are struggling uh, all around the nation and those are the top 3 most hotly contested things. Here's here's number 4, role of the pastor. Pastors to be omnipresent and omniscient. Many church members, let me tell you this, I am not omniscient and I am not omnipresent. Many and neither is Danny Uh, Many church members have clear expectations of what their pastor should do, right? Are are there trophies that we're polishing related to the role of pastor? Number five, committee structure. Many congregations continue committee structures long after their usefulness has waned, right? So there are some churches that have, uh, I kid you not, things like uh, reception room committees, right? Committees that organize the schedule for a receiving room or for, uh, you know, like a bridal preparation room, a parlor. Okay, number six, specific ministries and programs, He says, the healthy church constantly should constantly evaluate the effectiveness of its ministries and programs. That's good stewardship. Other churches continue their ministries and programs because that's the way that they've always done it. Number seven, location of church facility. A church relocation can be an issue of fierce debate, even contention in many congregations. Number eight, use of specific rooms. Some of the more frequently named rooms are the worship center, the parlor, the gym, the kitchen fellowship hall, right? On and on, and all the committees that go with each room. Number nine, business meetings. Now, now, hear me say, I'm a a Baptist through and through. I'm for congregational polity. I think that the church should govern the church. The members of the church should govern the church. But, But business meetings, traditions include the frequency of business meetings, the scope and authority of business meetings, items covered in business meetings. Number 10, staff ministry descriptions. Some churches insist, by tradition, on having the same staff positions with the same titles and the same ministry descriptions, even though the needs of the congregation has changed dramatically. Are any of these trophies in our personal trophy cases that we're polishing and dusting for no good reason? Are any of these trophies in the trophy case of our church that we're polishing and dusting for no reason? Things that, are not, that, that we're spending time on, that we're not actually giving to the, to the proclamation of the gospel, to evangelistic efforts, to getting the gospel to people who need to hear it? Are we spending more time polishing our trophies than we are with people one-on-one, walking in God's word together and discipling relationships? So then it's on the basis of the supremacy of God's word over man's wisdom and over man's tradition that Jesus then demonstrates that secondly, the word of God in verses 10 through 20 reveals our sinful hearts, our sinful hearts that come up with all sorts of traditions. We see in verses 10 and 11 and 16 through 20 that the mouth is the betrayer of the heart. Jesus continues on this issue of cleanness and uncleanness, right? Hands being clean or not, defiling a person that the Pharisees have introduced by their hand-washing accusation. He says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And then in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, uh, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus here states the obvious. That the traditions of man, hand washing before you eat. Do nothing to fix the heart condition of man. Whether the disciples wash their hands before they eat or don't doesn't make them any more or any less holy in the eyes of God. Jesus even says that eating unclean foods does not defile a person. Now, certainly, as we look at uh, Exodus and Leviticus, we read the kosher laws, right? The, the, the dietary laws that God gave to Israel. And, and we see that the dietary laws to Israel were to set them apart from the nations that were around them, not to keep them from eating things that would make them sinful. Look, church, Israel was already sinful. Eating shrimp and lobster wasn't going to make them more sinful. Eating specific foods, following certain rituals, none of this makes a person more holy or less holy. None of these things make a person uh, spiritually clean or defiled. Indeed, certainly, every person by Jesus' standard is already defiled. We are already sinful because out of our mouths come all sorts of indicators of the depravity of our hearts. Our mouths betray our hearts all of the time because with our mouths we communicate our evil thoughts. We speak murderous things. Our hearts have adulterous thoughts. We make crude, crass jokes. We show, we speak of our selfishness. We bear false witness. We lie about people. We say evil things and gossip about folks. All of the things that come out of our mouth, all of the things that we say, come from your heart. So in this, Jesus is instructing the disciples and the crowds to see their real need. Not to have clean hands and a clean mouth, But to have a new heart. God's word is replete with declaration that our greatest problem, our greatest problem is sin that is in each of our hearts. Your greatest problem, friend, is not your health concern today. Your greatest problem is not your financial need. The greatest problem in the world, the greatest evil in the world today is is not this humanitarian crisis in Syria or geopolitical uh, adversity between the United States and Russia. Those are not the greatest problems in the world today. The greatest problem in the world today is sin in the hearts of men and women. The very law of God, which is written to us, which we have in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, Only necessary, the laws of God are only necessary because of Israel's uh, already present disposition to sin. Their hearts are turned to sin. Look at Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20 quickly. I'll read it if you uh, catch up, awesome. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As as it is written, and here he quotes uh, Psalm 14 and 53. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace. They have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. He continues. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All of us are sinful. The greatest problem in all the world is that no one looks for God. No one wants God. In our own power and our own ability, it is impossible for us to seek righteousness, to be holy. And so Jesus points us all to our need, to the universal need for a new heart. And the promise of the new covenant Promise that we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, where God says through the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, he's speaking of the law in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them not just on stone tablets but in their hearts i will write it on their hearts i will be their god and they shall be my people that's the promise of god to put his law in our hearts and then ezekiel 36:26 we have the promise of a new heart where god through the prophet says i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God wants to give us new hearts. He wants to write his law upon our hearts so that we can love obedience to his law. But here's the thing. You can't get a new heart for yourself. In both of these places, both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who is doing the work? God, right? I will put my law in their... I will write my law in their hearts. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. We are the recipients of God's grace and salvation. We are the recipients of a new heart, not the producers of it. And Jesus, in saying this and pointing out to the Pharisees that the problem is not dirty hands, it's dirty hearts, he scandalizes, he offends the Pharisees. Verses 12 through 15, the disciples came to Jesus. They said, Do you know that the Pharisees are offended when they heard this saying? Duh. Jesus answered... Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Again, we said before, Matthew uses this word, uh, scandalizo, the Greek word scandalizo, which means to be scandalized, to be offended. The Pharisees are again offended by the truth that Jesus speaks. Jesus is unconcerned with the offense, though, that the Pharisees have, that they take because of his teaching, because he knows that they're hypocrites, verse 7, right? You hypocrites. They're not from the Father. They've not been planted by God the Father. Again, Jesus uses this uh, sort of uh, parable-type imagery that that reminds us of the parable of the wheat and the weeds back in Matthew chapter 13. They've not been planted uh, by the Father. They've been planted by the enemy. And so in the end time, they'll all be rooted up and they'll be thrown into the fire. The only place that anyone will end up following a guide who cannot see but thinks they know the way is in a ditch. The only, the only place that you'll end up spiritually. By, find, by following a person. Who thinks they know everything. But refuses to see the sinfulness of their own hearts. And their need for repentance and for God's grace. The only place you'll end up is a spiritual ditch. So then church allow God's word to reveal to you. The sin that is in your heart. Allow God's word to reveal that you have a heart. That needs to repent of sin. But also be aware of those who, by their sinful-hearted teaching, lead others astray. Be aware of those who lead other people away by their wrong teaching from the authority of God's word and toward their own traditions. Now, there are all sorts of individuals, teachers, traditions that we could talk about this morning. We don't necessarily have time for that, but right, certainly cult leaders... Uh, those uh, religions or faith groups that call themselves Christian but deny the centrality of of, uh, of Christ or the necessity of Christ's death on the cross and resurrection for salvation, right? Supposed Christian groups that deny that Jesus is fully both fully God and fully man, that he's co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. Church traditions that that that. Hold up as authoritative along with Scripture also the traditions of man and the teaching of the church. So as to say, God's word is not the supreme authority, but it's an authority. So-called church gurus that, you know, work and and, and minister, if you will, under the umbrella of Protestant evangelicalism. Those that have all of their... Um, You know, there are tips and tricks for growing your church that are that are not rooted in in getting the gospel to the lost. Even historic church and denominational traditions, things that come out by statements that sound something like that's not the way we've always done it. Or we've never done it that way before. Or this is just what Southern Baptists do. Don't you know? Friends, knowing that God's word is the antidote to traditions, knowing that it is authoritative and it fixes the problems of our traditions, it helps us to reprioritize, reorient our minds and our thinking about the traditions that we have. Helps us to fulfill the mission of the church, keeps us on track, keeps us on the straight and narrow, which is to fulfill the great commission of Matthew 28, taking the gospel to the nations And knowing that God's word is authoritative to that, to keeping us on track in mission. We find next in this passage or next in Matthew chapter 15 that the very word of God is not just the thing that keeps us on track, but it's the thing that catalyzes us. It's the thing that pushes us forward into compassionate gospel mission to the world. God's word is the catalyst for compassionate mission. Look at verses 21 through 39. Jesus went away from there. He withdrew withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out, and she was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they've had nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. God's word is the catalyst for a compassionate mission. First, because it communicates God's redemptive plan for the nations. It communicates God's redemptive plan for the nations. Now, having used this question of clean and unclean hands to reveal that the only universal spiritual need of every person is to have a new and a clean heart, a heart that is changed by God, Jesus then defies the traditions of the, uh, uh, of the elders about cleanliness and all those things by traveling to an unlikely place and interacting with an unlikely woman. He leaves the region of the Sea of Galilee. He goes to Tyre and Sidon, which are two uh, uh, cities that have always been associated with Gentiles, with non-Jews. And there he meets a woman, a Canaanite woman, who asks him a question, who has a request for Jesus in in verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. These two cities that Jesus goes to, Tyre and Sidon, where he meets this woman are just at the edge of the boundaries of Israel's national borders, on the, on the northern edge. But they were always associated with the pagan nation, Canaan. The, those people that occupied the promised land before the Israelites uh, came in and conquered the nation and, and, um, and dispossessed the land. In Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, we have the same story of the same woman. And there, Mark points out the woman's uh, present nationality as Syrophoenician. Canaan wasn't a nation anymore. So Mark calls her a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile. But Matthew uses this term Canaanite intentionally. And in so doing, he points out the historic difference between her people and the Jews. This woman is, is by the traditions of the Jews, an unclean woman. And so she addresses Jesus. And in addressing Jesus, she confesses who he is, his identity. Look at that. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. This confession of Jesus seemed to indicate that she in some way understands the messianic nature of Jesus' ministry and identity. That he is, he is the one that God has promised to the Jews to redeem the Jews, to save the Jews. It's the same term. Jesus the Christ, son of David, is the same term that's used in Matthew 1, 1 when, when Matthew says this is the genealogy of Jesus. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. It's the same confession by two blind men in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, where they say the same thing as this woman. Have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew twelve twenty-three, it's a question that Gentile people are asking uh, uh, about Jesus, or excuse me, not Gentile, but Jewish people asking about Jesus after he healed a demon-possessed person. They say in Matthew twelve twenty-three, could this be the son of David? And now here for the fourth time, we have another person confessing Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah, the promised savior of the world. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, she asks. And what does Jesus do? He denies her request three times. Verse 23. She uh, makes her request, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. Jesus doesn't even answer this woman a word. Are you taken back by that? Are you shocked by that? Are you bothered by that? Are you asking what's going on here? Is Jesus, can he really be so callous? Can he be so hard? We remember he healed a a Gentile centurion servant in in chapter 8 without any issues at all. So why would he here then deny this woman's request? The disciples, uncomfortable by the persistence of the woman, they asked Jesus to just send her away. Jesus, she keeps coming. She keeps pleading. Just send her away so she'll leave us alone. And in response to that, he denies her request a second time in his response to the disciples. He says, I was only sent, in verse 24, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What is this? Jesus, that's harsh, man. Seriously? How can this be true? He healed a centurion Gentile's son or servant. And, and he's healed two Gentile demon-possessed men in in uh, Matthew chapter eight. So why won't he heal? Why won't he even address this Gentile woman who acknowledges that he's the Son of David, that he's the Messiah? That's not all. Verse twenty six. She comes, uh, verse 25, she came up before him and said, Lord, help me. She pleads again. And Jesus' response to her is, a, is he's not just ignoring her. He's not giving explanation to the disciples. Now he addresses her personally. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So as to say, it's not a good thing to take what is for the people of Israel and give it to those who are not from Israel. I'll give you a second to pick your jaws up off of the floor. What is Jesus doing? Is he calling this woman a dog? There was amongst Jews at that time a habit of calling Gentiles dogs. Because they were not people of Israel. They were, they were second class. They were less than. They used this Greek word kuon, for, uh which means dog, to, to refer to Gentiles. Non-Jewish people. Called them dogs because they didn't have the law of God. They're called dogs by the Jews because they were not God's chosen. They were not God's children. But interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't use the word kuon, uh, which which implies a stray, sort of mangy, feral dog. He uses a different term for dog. Kunarion, which means a little dog, a house dog, a domesticated pet. So he's not saying it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the mangy animals in the street. He's saying it's not right to take the children's bread and, and throw it to Fido. And she responds in verse 27. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This is why Jesus keeps pushing and pressing and ignoring the woman to get this expression of faith and understanding of God's purposes in the Messiah through Israel. God's gift of the Messiah, God's gift of the son of David to Israel is for Israel first. Yes, as God's chosen people. But the overflow of the blessing of the Messiah to Israel is that he will, through Israel, be a blessing to the Gentiles as well. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God calls Abram to leave his home and go to the land that he's going to show him. He gives this promise to Abram. And at the end, he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is through Israel, all people will have the blessings of God that are also to Israel. One scholar writes this, that the faith of the Gentile woman here in this place sets itself unconditionally under the messianic lordship of Christ, of Jesus. And in this unconditional quality, it receives the acknowledgement and promise of Jesus. Verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Finally, in verse 28, we see the point of Jesus' questioning and prodding and ignoring of this woman. He wants to highlight her faith in the overflow of God's blessing to Israel through him. She, this Gentile woman, having declared that the blessing that is to the nations from God through Israel also demonstrates her faith in the God of Israel whose heart is for the nations. She understands the promise to Abram rightly. Yes, Lord, but even the blessing to the Jews is to bless the nations. Even the, even the household pets eat the crumbs that fall off of the children's plates. And so when this is made clear, when this confession of who Jesus is and, and this right understanding of the scriptures is made clear through this woman's confession to the crowd and the disciples, Jesus commends her faith and immediately heals her daughter. Jesus isn't, doing, isn't ignoring this woman to be mean. He's not ignoring her to be calloused. He's not saying the things that he's saying to be a jerk. He's doing it to pull out of her the confession of faith that he wants to highlight for the disciples to see. That the gospel, that the Messiah is not just for the Jews. That the blessing that he brings is for all people. And that that is what God's authoritative word has always proclaimed. Amen. So friends, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew by birth, Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in the Messiah, who is God's blessing to the nations for the forgiveness of their sins. Certainly, just as there's no room for anti-Semitism in the Christian life, there is no room for hatred or disregard for the people of any other nation or ethnicity. Say that again. In the life of the church, there is no room for anti-Semitism. That is to be anti-Jewish. And there's no room to be anti any other ethnicity or nationality. There's no room in the church to be anti-Syrian, to be anti-Iranian, to be anti-Russian, to be anti-any other geopolitical foe that is in the news these days. There is no space for that. Because the same Christ who saves us is the same Christ who has come to save the world. And so, knowing that, there's no room for hatred of ethnicities or races. Rather, we who have feasted upon God's grace as His children... Are called and commanded to bless the rest of the world through the overflow of God's grace to us in Jesus. Look, your salvation, my salvation, by trusting Jesus, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, is not just for your good. You are not saved just so that you can be saved. But you are saved first and foremost to give God glory as you live out your salvation by pointing others to Jesus. God has saved you to put you on a rescue mission to the nations of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes this It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one can boast because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are we saved for? To be a new creation. Not we're not saved so that you can do whatever you want to do. You're saved so that you can do what God has commanded you to do. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy is a small book. I have a hard time finding it in this Bible. 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul says this to the, to the young pastor Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in, kingdom, uh, in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Christian, what are you saved to do? Not to just be saved. You are saved to glorify God in the proclamation of the gospel. Doing the work of an evangelist in the world. Evangelism is not just the task for preachers. It's not just a task for deacons and church leaders. Evangelism is the task, is the mission for the church. Secondly, in verses 29 through 39, and here we'll be brief, I promise. The word of God... As it dispels our traditions, as it corrects our perspective, ultimately compels us to indiscriminate gospel ministry. It compels us to indiscriminate gospel ministry. Now as we are reading verses 29 through 39, you probably thought, didn't we just look at this last week in chapter 14? Um, and there are certainly some similarities. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus uh, feeds 5,000 people in verses 13 through 21. And, and so here in uh, verses 29 through 39, he feeds 4,000 people. And while there are many similarities between these two passages that have caused some scholars to think that this is just a reduplication by Matthew, I think there are some significant differences that show us that, no, these are two distinct events and that they happen for a reason. First, among these differences, verse one uh, verse 31... Uh, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. He begins healing people. And in response to the healing, what do the people do? They wondered when they saw what Jesus was doing and they glorified the God of Israel. Notice that Matthew doesn't write that they just glorified God, but they glorified the God of Israel. This is a phrase, an identification of the object of worship that distinguishes this Gentile crowd that is following Jesus from Tyre and Sidon, that uh, the, the, the distinguishes the, the, um, the God that they are worshiping over and against the gods of their forefathers, the gods of Canaan. They are not any longer worshiping false gods at the work of Jesus. They're worshiping the God of Israel, the one true God. Second distinction. Relatively insignificant verse 34 in this instance there are uh, seven loaves and in chapter 14 verse 17 there's five loaves for that crowd. We see at the end of this uh, event there are seven baskets of leftovers taken up versus 12 baskets that are taken up in chapter 14. The numbers of people that are served are different. There are 4,000 men plus women and children here in chapter 15 uh, versus the 5,000 men plus women and children uh, that were served in uh, Matthew chapter 14. Now, differences aside, the point of this passage is that as the word of God is what, uh, because the word of God is what drives the mission of Jesus, right? A right understanding of God's word over human tradition it enables followers of Jesus to see that the intent of God, uh, to see the intent of God in sending His Messiah through Israel is to bless the nations through them and their Messiah. Note, n- note this: Jesus is feeding a crowd of Gentiles to virtually the same magnitude as He did a crowd of Jews in Chapter 14. Who is Jesus for? Who does He serve? Who does He bless? All people, all nations. The faith of this Canaanite woman illustrates the right way to read and understand the work of God in the Old Testament. That we are to read the Old Testament to see how God intends to bless the nations as an end of his blessing Israel. As a purpose to his blessing of Israel. And Jesus does that for this Canaanite woman. And then he turns and he does it for a crowd of Gentiles saying, yep, I'm your Messiah too. I'm the bread of heaven for the Jews and I'm the bread of heaven for the Gentiles. Notice what he says about the crowd in verse 32. Jesus calls the disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Notice what Matthew says about Jesus in in Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, with this Jewish crowd. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Who does Jesus love? Just Jews? Nope. Jews and Gentiles alike. Who does he have compassion for? Jews and Gentiles alike. Who does he provide for? Jews and Gentiles alike. Who is the only way of salvation for all, for for anybody, uh, uh, Jews and Gentiles alike? Jesus. And so because Jesus has compassion for those who are far from God, Gentiles are not people who are close to God. Because Jesus has compassion, has love, has care for those who are far from God, so must also his disciples, his followers, his church today Uh, uh, have compassion for those who are far from God. Friends, Jesus is not the way to salvation or the Messiah for just a special group of people, but for all people. He's for the Jew and the Gentile. He's for the man and the woman. He's the only way of salvation for the white-collar millionaire and for the homeless transient. He's the only one who can change the hearts of the stay-at-home mom and the career politician. Lord, Please do that. Jesus is no respecter of your citizenship in this nation or any other because he died for all that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus, who is the only sinless God man, whose death paid for our sin and resurrection secured our eternal life, will be saved. I don't care where you're from, I don't care what your background is, I don't care whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're old or young, whether you've got millions in your bank account or nothing when you go home today. I don't care whether you're from America or you're an immigrant to this country, whether you're documented or undocumented. There is one way to be made right with God the Father and your creator, and it is by trusting Jesus, his son, who had compassion So much so that he gave his life on a cross. He died the most inhumane, excruciating death imaginable so that our sins would be paid for. This is the message of salvation through the pages of the Bible. It's the good news, it's the gospel that we have the commission to take to all people, church. God's word changes our hearts, it challenges our preferences. It, it, it convicts us of, of unhealthy, evil traditions. And it is God's word that commissions us to the many nations of this word, world and compels us to proclaim the gospel with Christ-like compassion for all people. Friend, maybe this morning your response to God's word needs to be that you trust this Jesus for the first time. You've, you've never trusted, but you know by your own, your own conscience tells you that you have done things that are wrong, that are immoral, that are an offense to a holy God. And maybe today you've seen Jesus in a new light and you've understood him as the, as the only one who can save you. And, and you're moved by the fact that he would even do that, even save you from your sins. Make a way to do that. You want to trust him for the first time. Maybe that needs to be your response today. In a moment, I'll be here at the front to, to greet you, to pray with you, to counsel with you about how to do that. But friend, maybe today, your response to this word, you're already trusting Jesus. Maybe today what you need to do is repent of some, some trophies you've been dusting for a long time that are not helpful for getting the gospel out. Maybe you need to repent of holding on too tightly to some things that are, that are not primarily about God's word but are about your preferences. Maybe today you need to repent of racism in your heart that keeps you from taking the gospel to people that are not like you. Whatever it is today, would you respond to God's word in obedience? Would you understand that this, uh, this word is authoritative? It changes lives. It transforms lives. The Jesus that is in this word has changed you if you are trusting him. And he wants to change the hearts of any who would turn from their sin and place their faith in him and in him only. Let's pray.